Open the Bible in the passage we read in John chapter 21, uh, reading again at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The summer of 1979 really does stick out in my mind. I was a student at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow studying English and politics, and I had the dream summer job. I worked for a local garage in the island of Skye, and my job was to deliver brand new cars and collect them all over Scotland. I remember it so well, it was a Wednesday and the task was very pleasant. I had to deliver a brand new Ford Escort 1.6 Gia from Portree in the island of Skye to Kilmarnock in Ayrshire to a garage called McConaughey's. And so I was travelling down the A9 and I uh, stopped at a telephone kiosk. Now, for those of you who are a certain age, there were things called telephone kiosks and public phones back in the day. And if you wanted to make a romantic phone call, that's what you did. And so I stopped to make a romantic phone call to the lady who is now my wife, and I was so excited by her voice and the phone, when I put the phone down, I got into the car, I reversed it back at full speed, bam, right into a telegraph pole. It was a brand new car, there was a customer in Kilmarnock waiting for it, and it was now written off. That was a bad day at the office. What is the worst mistake that you have ever made in your life? Well, I have to say that by a country mile, that was not the worst mistake I have ever made in my life. But many of us come this morning to the church here, and our lives are full of mistakes bigger than that. I went back to Portree. I explained that to my boss. He was, I think, one of the most forgiving men I know. And he gave me a job the next day to deliver, if you're a car buff, it was a Sierra XR4i. I had to deliver that to Fort William, a bigger and more valuable car than the day before. I had mocked up, but he trusted me to do the same thing again. He did not, however, pay me for the day before, which was understandable. Then that all happened at a place called Blair Athol on the A9 in Scotland. This was Peter's Blair Athol moment. You know the story here that Peter had denied the Lord Jesus Christ before the crucifixion. You know that it was a bad day for him and it was a huge mistake. I wonder was he reminded of that particular day. Look at verse 9. There was a fire of burning coals there with fish in it. Maybe it's speculation, but we know that when Peter denied the Lord in the courtyard of the high priest, that there was a burning fire. So we have a burning fire then, and there we maybe have another burning fire here. Peter had denied his Lord three times, and then we see here a parallel asking three times, Lord, do you love me? So that day, in many ways, reminded him of that disastrous day uh, a few days before that. The burning fire, and now again, the threefold affirmation. So this is Peter's moment of restoration. And how we all love Peter. Peter was the brash disciple. 
Peter was a disciple who opened his mouth before engaging his brain, and he was always getting into trouble. Do you recognize the scenario here? Now, you need to recognize one or two things about the context here. Once again, for the first time since that incident, all the disciples are together with Jesus. And so they had not met, Peter had not met Jesus until this moment. And you can imagine the potential awkwardness. Notice that Jesus alludes to that in verse 15. He doesn't call him Peter the rock. Notice here he says to him, Simon, son of John. You see, he, he didn't call him the rock. Without Jesus, he would remain a, a, a Simon. Now, as they were in that situation together, I wonder, was this an awkward moment? We have an expression in our own society, the elephant in the room. You know, if you have had a, a situation and maybe it's a social faux pas, Maybe you've had an argument with someone, you haven't seen them for weeks, and there you are, you find yourself in the same dinner party with this person, and it clearly is an awkward moment. And so we find here that Peter had denied the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know the man, I don't know who he is, I am not with him, and Jesus is crucified, and now they are together. I want to look at this passage this morning, and I really just want to look at three things I think are happening here. The first thing we notice here is confrontation. Confrontation. Because clearly, as Jesus meets Peter, there is a confrontational element here. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we're looking here at Peter's repentance. Peter is going to turn. But repentance just does not come out of thin air. Repentance must begin somewhere. And repentance as in life, as in this passage, restoration begins with repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a reverse turn. Repentance here is turning from sin and towards Jesus. And it's very tough to be confronted with our sin. It is very, very difficult. Every sin can be forgiven. I don't know anybody, I hardly know anybody here this morning. I don't know your story. I don't know your sin. I don't know your background. I don't know your personal autobiography. But whoever you are, every sin can be forgiven. There is no lost cause. But first of all, they have to be brought before the Lord. There is no forgiveness without honesty before God. And that leads to confrontation. Look at verse 17. Peter was hurt. Isn't that the cardinal sin of our own society? That someone somewhere was hurt. Can you imagine an emergency meeting of the London City Presbyterian Church? An emergency meeting of the Kirk Session was called for this evening because someone in the congregation was hurt. And that's what we have all through our society. You can do anything to anyone, but as soon as someone is hurt, then really all hell breaks loose, literally. Sometimes Jesus does hurt. And that's the fact. 
They said a relationship with Jesus is not one of absolute affirmation. It is not a feel-good factor all the time. There are times when we are confronted with our sin and we are confronted with our failure that there is a high degree of heart. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Isn't that quite explosive in this man-centered society where everybody's kind of going to church to find a kind of life-coaching, life-affirming experience? The last thing we want to be is heart. But folks, the ministry of this church and any biblical ministry will often bring that degree of heart. There is something wrong if heart is something that, that is all that that ministry. But we find that this was uh, indeed a, a feature of the ministry of Peter himself. Uh, at the day of Pentecost, he preached a very bold sermon, and it was repent and be baptized. And I'm sure many folk hearing Peter preach would have been heart, but they would have been quickened in their hearts and they would have turned to God. This is a relationship with sin. And whenever we are a Christians, our relationship with sin is radically altered. On my pin board at home, up in the pin board, a member of my congregation sent me this quote. It's from NASA. Failure is not an option. I put it up there because it reminds me of the absolute untruth of it all. Not only is failure not an option, failure is absolutely inevitable. And if we transfer the word failure for the word sin, that's what we do. Every single day, in everything that we do, we sin in our thoughts, words, and in our deeds. But no matter how deep that sin is, no matter where you are in your own soul, no matter where you have been. And some folk here, I'm sure, have been very, very far down. That can be forgiven. There's a Christian writer called Rita Snowden, and she writes this. You ask me what forgiveness means? It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. The wonder of being trusted again by God. That surely is a great sign of the grace of God. And that is the core of Christianity. It's grace. It's not our performance for God. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to start a new religion. The Lord Jesus Christ came to abolish religion. Religion is what we can do to pacify God. Christianity is what God has done to forgive us. That's grace. And that's what Peter is experiencing here after this confrontation. So we've got this confrontation and he's beginning the process of repentance but repentance means moving on. Some of us love pity parties. You know, uh, I saw on Facebook today one of my friends who's preaching says, you know, pray for me, I've got man flu. You know, men are really, men revel in, 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 their, in their misery. You know, we've got a little sniffle, 
the world has collapsed, you think we've got bubonic plague, and we can, you know, we can do that in life, we can revel in our misery. Some folk love to be miserable. Remember what Jesus said to the man in the pool of Bethsaida, do you really want to get well? That's a fundamental question. Do you really want to get well? Are there some folk here really ecstatic in your misery? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go and eat worms. And there you are in your own personal pity party. That is not what repentance is. Peter was confronted with Jesus. He was hurt, as it says there in verse 17. But Jesus wants to move him on. That's why he asks a series of questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's moving on to trying to establish from him his love for the Lord. Do you love me more than these? Now, that's a really interesting question. Do you love me more than these? I think that that recalls the atmosphere of the upper room. Now, we don't, we don't have a video of, of the Bible. We don't, you know, we've got to guess certain things. And I think Jesus was saying, there's a crowded room here, or a crowded gathering, and he's saying to Peter, do you love me more than these guys here love me? Now, that's really, really interesting. Because one of Peter's weaknesses was that he thought that he was better than everybody else. Supposing all these guys deny you, I never will. He thought he was superior. And Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, now that you have gone through failure, now that you've gone through all these things, do you love me more than these people? And then he goes on to ask him three times, do you love me? Now, if you're a Greek scholar, you know that the word that Peter uses is weaker than the word that Jesus uses. So Jesus says, do you love me a lot? Peter says, I love you. Do you love me a lot? I love you. Do you love me a lot? You know that I love you a lot. Now, I don't think there's tremendous significance in the difference between these two words, to be frank. John often uses two different words for uh, the the same uh, issue. But if anything, it expresses the breadth of love. But it's a very significant question. Do you love me? I have a friend called Klaus. Klaus is a consultant in business. Now, I never know what a consultant is. Maybe some of you are consultants or employ consultants. But I said to Klaus, what do you do? And we were in this restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee, and he said, I ask silly questions. I go into businesses and I ask silly questions. And I thought to myself, oh, 250k a year for asking silly questions? I could do that. But there's a kind of knack in it, isn't it? It is sometimes a straightforward, simple questions that elicit big things. Do you love me? Well, that opens out a whole new arena of philosophy and and life. 
If you will remember telephone kiosks, you will also remember the romance between Prince Charles and Lady Diana. That is an interesting study in relationships and romance. How uh, the older Prince Charles fell in love with Lady Diana and they were interviewed just after their engagement in one of the most awkward interviews ever. And Prince Charles asked, are you in love? He hesitated. But then he replied, and I think folk are a tad hard on him. He said, it depends what you mean by love. Now, if I were Lady Diana, I'd probably slap the guy in the face. (laughs) However, there is a point, isn't there? It depends what you mean by love. And clearly Diana was infatuated, you know, rapturously in love with this man, the love of her life, the older man who was her dream, her everything. To Charles, Diana was, I don't know what she was, the guarantor of the future of the monarchy. I I haven't got a clue. But the point is, do you love me? We, we live in an age where language is debased. And what does love mean? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you not agree that love has been debased? You know, language goes through phases. The great fashion just now is to begin every sentence with so. You know, you notice that? Uh, so many folks just begin the word so. When did you come to London? So, whereabouts in the world are you from? This, it'll go out of fashion eventually. A few years ago, the fashion was love you. That was what the expression was love you. Just like a discarded piece of paper thrown away, love you. Was it meant, did it mean, I will love you to death, do us part. I will take a bullet for you. I will sacrifice my everything for you. I will give my life for you. So the question about us and Jesus is, do you love me? It's powerful. The question this morning, I'm not a consultant earning 250k. I'm just a humble country preacher. And I'm saying, do you love Christ? Now, loving Christ has many facets. There's knowledge. Do we love Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible? Or do we just love an image? So to love someone, you need knowledge. To love someone, you need obedience. You've got to do things. And to love someone requires feelings. Are we agreed? That loving means knowledge. Loving means obedience. And loving means a degree of passion. Although biblical love arguably is is about command. Because if you wait for feelings before you love, some of us would wait an awful long time. Repentance leads to a change of mindset. 
And so the question for everyone here this morning is, as we are confronted with Jesus, do you love him? Now, see the change. Look at verse 17. See the change in Peter here. He puts it back. He's no longer the arrogant guy that he was. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. No longer is he deaf to the Lord Jesus' estimation of him. He says, Peter is saying, now, I can't trust myself anymore, Lord. You are sovereign. You are king. You know if I love you. So that's the first thing we see in the passage here, confrontation. And the question to us about our own faith and love for Jesus Christ is, do you love me? I say that I support Rangers football team, which is a football team up there in Glasgow, which used to be. Used to be. I support Rangers. I could not name five Rangers. The second thing we notice here is commission. That really is extraordinary. Because after the confrontation, we have his commission. Notice what the commission is, verse 16. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. (laughs) That's incredible. This is the guy who had denied Jesus. This is the guy who said, I don't know you. And now he's saying, I want you to be basically the chief instigator of a church. I want you to kick my church off. The day of Pentecost, I'm going, I want you to be the main preacher. I want you to be the first and maybe even greatest of all the preachers. Now, was Peter the first pope? Probably not, but he was certainly the guy who was given the job of kicking the church off. That's a big job. And yet he was a failure. He had denied the Lord. Folks, that is the unmistakable grace of God. That from this position of abject failure and in-your-face denial of Jesus, the Peter who really blushed at being associated with Jesus is the very guy he picks to start his church. That is grace. That is far bigger than giving me the keys of an XR4i after having smashed up a Ford Escort the day before. It's in a different league. Some folk are uneasy about this. Some folk are really uneasy about a philosophy that forgives so much. Can a mass murderer ever be forgiven? Some folk are uneasy about grace. What an appropriate passage. You're going to be appointing or ordaining an elder and a couple of deacons next Sunday. What's their task? It's the same as the task given to Peter. Feed my lambs. Again, he says in verse 16, take care of my sheep. That was his commission. I love the metaphor of sheep. You know, city folk and country folk view sheep very, very different. City folk view sheep as cute, cuddly, 
pastoral animals, benign, really quite nice. Country folk view, view them as economic units. That's, that's all they are. Economic units that create hassle. Uh, they go the wrong place, they do the wrong things, they don't cooperate, they mess up, they need constant care, and if you're a small farmer in the north of Scotland, they drain all your money. That's the reality, at least that's what you tell the tax man. They are absolutely no use whatsoever, and they are hassle. What a great image of us, the church. <laughs> broken, going the wrong way, a propensity to go astray. It's real strange. I don't know if any of you ever drive in country areas. It's like sheep clock out of county cars. I don't know, do they see the number plate? And it's like they're in conspiracy. They all wait and say, here's a Yorkshire car. Let's jump now. And they just jump in front of it. Or you've got a really nice grassy field. This is the one I love. A really nice grassy field, you know, four acres field. And you've got a fence and then you've got a road, a, a grass verge. And you've got like 200 sheep on the verge and two sheep in the field. It's like they love to go astray. It's like us. We just love to deny God. We love to break his law. We're all over the place. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. To change the image a little bit here. I, I think uh, um, you're going to be looking a little bit more about sheep and a shepherd tonight uh, as, as Andrew takes you through a passage in Zechariah. The sheep metaphor and the shepherd metaphor is fundamental in the Bible. Was Jesus married? Of course Jesus was married. Of course he was, without a doubt. Who was the wife of Jesus? The wife of Jesus is the church. His bride. He is married to his bride. And so we get the image changing here. Sheep, the shepherd, the bride. And we are called to love the church. We are called to love the bride of Christ. And so what we have here is confrontation and then commission, feed the church, have this great love for the church. Do you love the church? The church with all its failings. Do you slag the church off to your family? That's a bad thing. Your family will grow up hating the church. Being cynical about the church. Love the church. Love it in all its glorious mess. Love it in its beauty. Love it in its chaos. Love it in its togetherness. Love it in its good days. Love it in its bad days. And I, don't you just love this church? This disparate group of people brought together by the providence of God from all over the world in this place at this time. This commission is to feed the church. This is Peter being called to the opposite of what he was before. Before he was a loud, impetuous, adrenaline junkie. He was all over the place, wasn't he? Living for the excitement of the moment. Now he is called for the long task of feeding the sheep. Now remember what Jesus says is, take care of my sheep. 
One of the phrases I hated when I was a minister was folk would go and say, I was at your church the other day. It's not my church. It's the church of Jesus. It's not Andy's church. It's not the elders' church. It belongs to Jesus. We see here confrontation. We see here commission. But there's a third and final thing we see in the the remaining five, ten minutes. We see here the cost. Confrontation, commission, cost. Look at verse 8. There is a chilling phrase. Verse 18, sorry. There's a chilling phrase in verse 18. It's an enigmatic verse, isn't it? Very true, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. Hmm. Isn't this intriguing? But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Isn't that somewhat intriguing verse? The word in the street is that Peter died by crucifixion. Doesn't that shed a little bit light on you? will stretch out your hands and go where you do not want to go. Reliable sources say that he was crucified in the Neuronic persecution in the, the early 60s. Cost. Cost. Some of you here are followers of Jesus. Some of you are interested inquirers. Some of you have just dropped in. And the great thing is, there is a purpose for everything. If you've just dropped in off the street in this cold November morning, why? Not only in language do folk begin the word sentence with so. Not only do they say love you, but a word that's gone a little bit out of fashion is random. People say, man, that was random. Nothing is random. This morning is purposeful. What is the purpose of us being here? The path of discipleship is laid out. And we see here the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And the principles of the kingdom of heaven are death. (laughs) Death. You say, well, he's cheery. That's the last time we're getting a guy from Scotland to preach here. No, death to self. Ego, self-will, self-ambition. So Peter is restored here, and the Lord Jesus Christ is predicting what death he is going to have. There's another little principle here, and, and it's a lot more positive, and that is death is not the end. You see, Christianity turns death on its head. Do you fear death? There's a verse in the Bible that says, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because we are a believer, we have seen the whole death thing transformed. Look at verse 19. Jesus expands it. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. (laughs) He's going to be crucified, and yet Jesus is saying, this is going to glorify God. Let me just unpack this a little bit. All Christian death glorifies God. Brief story. I have a very good friend called David Robertson. Two years ago, David Robertson was in Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee. I was called down by his wife to pray at his bedside because he was expected to die 
in 24 hours. He was my best friend. We'd spoken every day for the last 30 years. We'd spoken every day in life, apart from when he was on holiday, and he was about to die. People prayed for healing. It was said that things were so desperate that even the atheists were praying for his healing. His son, Andrew, wrote something on Facebook. Really quite remarkable. Because folk were saying, well, there's all this prayer. And Andrew put down on Facebook, if he lives, prayer is answered. If he dies, prayer is answered. And our atheist friends said, you Christians, you really do have a win-win situation. (laughs) If you die, your prayer is answered. If you live, your prayer is answered. What's going on? That's exactly the point. This is how the Christian faith is not a culture of death. It's a culture of life. He says, look, you're going to die, but God's going to be glorified by that. In other words, there's going to be purpose through this. God is glorified in our death. And Jesus said here, follow me. Follow me. Do you see that? In verse 19. How are we going to end this sermon? How are we going to come into land? There's an imperative, there's a command to every single person here, and it is, follow me. How are we going to do that? I was staying with uh, Andy and Catherine last night, and uh, I don't know if you've ever stayed in their house, but they, they provide reading material for their guests. And at the end of the bed, there were three books. And uh, the one at the top was John E. Lewis. His book is London, the Autobiography. It is a brilliant book. If I'm a little bit tired, it's because I was up half the night reading it. London is an extraordinary place. In that book, John E. Lewis tells the story of Sabert, who was the uh, uh, king of the East Saxons. These were the guys who ruled this place in the year 616. Now, in the year 616, this dude, Sabert, the king of the East Saxons, died, and he had three sons. Now, the bishop of London at the time was a guy called Bishop Melitus. Melitus. And uh, Bishop Melitus did, did his stuff, probably near where St. Paul's is just now. And the King Sabbath's three sons walked into a church service and they were having communion. And the three sons says, why don't you give us some of that white bread that you gave my father? And Melitus says, if you will be washed in the font of salvation, you may take the bread. The three king's sons said this. We will not enter that font because we know that we do not stand in need of it and yet we will be refreshed by that bread. Melitus says, you're not getting the bread unless you repent. Melitus was thrown out, exiled to France, 
and the rest, well, you can buy the book and find out what happened. London hasn't changed. Give us the bread. You've got to repent. No. We want the benefits, but not the repentance. Peter had been a very long way down. But Jesus says, follow me. And through Peter, a movement was started that turned the whole world upside down. If you want to follow Jesus, you can do it right now. You have a choice this morning. Do you want to go on in your mundane trajectory of career and life? Or do you want to start turning the world upside down? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word.